Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel for all his iniquities. God in heaven, we come before you as a family, uh, gathering together because we share a common blood in Jesus. God, we ask for your spirit to be upon us as we go into your word. I pray that we just humble our souls uh, to hear your word, to listen to it, not just simply listen and be okay with that, but to listen and then carry it on into our lives, into our families into the city, God, and beyond. We just ask that you would do a work because we know that you can. You've done it before, and you are doing a work even when we can't see it. Uh, So I just want to specifically pray over those who are coming in, who are struggling, who are in dark places, um, maybe have come to confront darkness within themselves. And I pray that we all leave here together as a family, rejoicing in hope, a deep hope, a real hope that can only come from you. Pray this in your name. Amen. We have been in the Song of Ascents, and actually we are drawing to the last part of this series of psalms. Just as a reminder, psalms are poetic songs used as prayers for the individual, but also especially for the community. The psalms uniquely instruct us on who God is and what he has done. And so while they often engage our emotions in prayer to God, they're also deeply rich in theology, that in in theology simply just meaning knowing God. They are deep with, uh, in a deep way as we engage the Psalms, it gives us a new picture of who he is and what God has done for us. The Song of Ascents are this small little group of 15 Psalms. They all have that little subtitle, Song of Ascents. It's like your Apple playlist, your Spotify playlist. They were organized and put together with a major theme, and that theme is this journey, a journey of people going from a place far from God in a desert place to moving into his near presence. This journey is not a simple ascent without any complications. In fact, as Alaskans, we probably understand this a little bit more. It depicts more like a mountain range of depths and heights, moments of joy, moments of despair. It reminds us how we should journey through this life and to keep the object of the journey constantly in front of us because all of us, all of us are on our journey, all of us are seeking peace. We believe because of Scripture that that journey is following after Jesus and that only peace with God can come through him. So with that, we're going to look at Psalms 130. And this psalm in particular, like if there was going to be a track of this group of psalms that would like rise up above all the others, I would say Psalm 130 does it because it's a song of ascent. It goes from the very depths of our soul and brings us to this place of hope. And so it characterizes 
the whole series that we are looking at. So I think this is, in particular, uh, a psalm that we need to pay attention to as it displays an ascent to hope. Before we jump into that, I want to share a story. It's the Miracle Pine story. I was discussing with my older sister the psalm this week, and she brought up this story. I'd never heard of it before, and it's what inspired her for one of the three pieces of art she did this week. Uh, It's the one we're going to use on the slide. Um, And what it is is a story about a city, and I'm going to butcher the name. It's in Japan. It's Rakuzen Takata City that is on the coast of Japan. You may remember back in 2011, there was a devastating earthquake that happened right off the coast of Japan, and it just, the tsunamis that hit just laid waste. In fact, we got a picture of the city. This is the downtown area on the coast. It looks like a nuclear bomb went off. Hardly any buildings were left remaining. So I, I have this little quote um, from a website that describes what happened there. It says, the coast of Rakuzen Takata City was once beloved for its picturesque white sand beaches and thick forests. The coastal forest once stood 70,000 pine trees strong, protecting the city from storms and tsunami. Tragically, the unprecedented power of the 2011 tsunami obliterated the coastal forest, as well as the entire downtown of the city. Nearly 2,000 people lost their lives. Of those, of the forest, of those 70,000 trees, only one survived the force of the tsunami. This one tree left standing was dubbed the Miracle Pine and soon became a symbol of hope and recovery for the entire region. Although this tree did eventually die from exposure to salt water, it has been preserved as a permanent memorial thanks to donations from around the world. So that's the actual tree itself in the, in the city as it is preserved. And so my sister shared the story with me, and I was like, this perfectly depicts the psalm and the intent of the psalm. Only one tree survived out of the horror of a tsunami. This tree serves as an image. It's a reminder of the power of hope, how we can face terrible destruction, terrible tragedy, and still come out on the other side. There's a beautiful resilience that this tree represents, that it depicts. And even though it died, it came back as a memorial. And think about it. Think about the families that were all devastated by this. Watch their businesses just wiped out. Uh, Parents who had to face the reality that their kids had died. Um, Sons who had to face the reality that their father wasn't coming back. And yet there is this tree that reminds them that there is still hope, that they can still rebuild, that even though they saw their neighbors die, their livelihoods destroyed, the pine survived, and maybe I can survive as well and rebuild. And for us who live in the United States, it's 9-11. It's that memorial of another tragedy, another dark story in which many people died, over 3,000 because of a terrorist act. And there are those who this day is hard because they remember that, and that darkness is particularly close to them. And so we have memorials for that as well, and they are meant to do that, what inspire hope that in spite of darkness, that there can be a way forward. So Psalm 130 confronts the darkest element of all humanity, and it comes from our own souls. And 
if you've ever been in that period, whether you've faced trauma, you faced whatever it is, often the hardest moment is when you see the brokenness within yourself. And you wonder, how can I move forward? I'm part of the problem. I'm adding to the turmoil and chaos of humanity. How do I do this? And so Psalm 130 confronts this, and it invites us to a cycle of hope. And that's the point behind today. It's an invitation to engage in this cycle of hope. To first of all cry out from the depths, then to wait on the Lord, and to hope in his promises. So let's jump into Psalm 130. Starting in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This beginning of the psalm, it describes a place of darkness. Now, if you were here last week in Psalm 129, that was a dark psalm. It it went, even the previous psalm, it was like a psalm of blessing. It was like you descended this height and things were good and and great. It's one of those psalms that maybe gives you a smile or feels great in the morning with a hot cup of coffee. And then in Psalm 129, it takes this nosedive into the darkness of oppression when people are, in their brokenness and sin, are harming and hurting us. But then it's like this psalm, the beginning of it, takes it just one notch farther, goes one layer deeper into darkness, a place of misery. And this word, when you look at the depths, it's, it's a nautical term, and it's referring to the dark ocean. And I don't, I don't know if you're like me, I hate the ocean in some ways because of that element of the depths of dark seawater and imagining it going over me. Like, that's why I don't like movies like the Titanic and stuff like that. It just drives me nuts. But that is it, this absolute hopelessness, this idea of being underneath this weight. And we see this in other psalms as well. You see, the point behind this is the darkness comes out of a sin and what sin does. That sin is the corruption that is indwelt in all humanity in this broken world because humans rebelled against God. The relationship was broken. And so if you look down at verse 3, it says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Meaning that if God put the weight of our own brokenness upon us, we would not be able to, we wouldn't be able to live, let alone stand. And so this is what's driving this author, this psalmist, this songwriter to this plea. And the beauty of it, though, in the first glimpse of hope, this first ability to be able to cry out is the fact that we're able to cry out at all. The fact that we are alive today, the fact that we are breathing, speaks that there is something bigger than the depths that we may be in today. So, Sin, this corrupting force, this metaphorical tsunami, if you will, comes against us and sin has pinned us all in the depths of our soul, a deep so great that we are hopeless to come out of it. Psalm 69.2 puts it this way, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Ezekiel 27.34 says, 
Now you are wrecked by the seas. In the depths of the waters, your merchandise and all your crew in your midst have sunk with you. And so the author comes to this place of simplicity, a place of humility, to this place of saying, I've only got one place to turn to. That is the Lord, and my only hope at this point is that he hears me, that his ear is attentive, that he might actually hear my plea for mercy. And so out of the depths, that's where the cry comes from. But then we see what the cry is like. It is a plea for mercy. Now, if we go all the way back to Psalm 120, we see this psalm that describes a person who is shamelessly desperate to start out on a journey seeking the place of God. I took that term from a seminary friend of mine who was using that, this idea of shamelessly desperate, meaning that doesn't matter what obstacles in our way, we know there's one place where we can find hope for this life and we'll do whatever it takes, even if we look like an idiot doing it, to seek that place of hope. And so here it is. The sinner is just wanting the Lord to hear because what happens if the Lord hears? He knows that he's going to be rescued. But this is not just a simple cry for help. It is a cry for mercy. It's a recognition. This person has looked into the mirror of their soul and they finally come to that place of saying, no, I am the problem. All of life's issues, all the problems that we see in the world, they are the cumulative human issue of sin. We are all guilty. We are all responsible. We are all part of the problem of the brokenness that we see here on this earth. I love this quote from Tim Keller. He says this, when a newspaper posed the question, what's wrong with the world, the Catholic thinker G.K. Chesterton reputedly wrote a brief letter in response, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That is the attitude of someone who has grasped the message of Jesus. And this is why we gather. This is why we gather here at the church. This is why gathering on a Sunday even with the mess of life, even with young families, even with that, whatever it may be, is we come to cry. We come to start the process of the cycle of hope. Like we come here, we sing songs, not just because music sounds good. It's because we all are in the depths of some kind because we're in this world and we need Jesus. And what happens is not just because we're engaging in singing or in God's word or in talking to each other, it's that It's not even just us beginning and engaging in the cycle of hope. It's that we're engaging it with each other. It's meaning that there may be someone else who just your very presence, just your voice and singing, just your encouraging prayer, whatever it may be, is setting them up for the week and whatever they may face, starting in that place of humility, starting in that place of simplicity of saying, I need Jesus, and going from there. And think about our kids. For you kids who are here, watching adults who are coming and coming before Jesus, this is one of our most powerful testimonies. And for you as parents, man, we, it's so hard sometimes whether our kids are acting out or they're not doing exactly what we want and we think, man, they're not getting anything out of it. When they see you crying out to Jesus genuinely, it impacts their life. It will carry with them for years and years and maybe into the generations to follow. So this cry, we also see that there's a point behind it, and that's just simply the need for forgiveness. And we have this line in verse, uh, in verse 4 where it says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
And I'd encourage you, um, a couple psalms ago, we were talking about this idea of fear and what it looks like. It's not a horror fear. Rather, it's a holy fear. And the analogy that I've used before was with kind of this encounter I had with Denali flying close to it where I realized, wow, there's a weight behind this mountain. It's 20,000 feet tall and it's huge. And I'm in this little aluminum tube flying over it that's like this small compared to the mountain. And so the weight of it had an impact upon me. And so the weight of God His massiveness, his holiness, his creative power should have a weight that affects us in our life where we realize he's the ultimate authority. He's the ultimate power. But get this, when you see fear coupled with forgiveness, his forgiveness is just as massive as his creation. It's just as great as his wrath against sin. And I think sometimes when we hear forgiveness, we think of it as this shallow thing or kind of a weak thing or it's a nice thing. And maybe sometimes we forget just how great his forgiveness is. Because when we get the depths of our darkness, when we get the struggles of life that we face and how incapable we are, we need his forgiveness to be that great, to pull us out of the depths. That's what encourages us to cry in the first place. So we humbly approach his throne in true desperation, knowing, knowing that he will answer, knowing that he has forgiveness, And that we will find the most precious of all treasures, which is peace with God. We see the first part of this cycle of hope, this crying out, displayed in Jesus when he goes to the cross. Think about it with me. Let's go back to the Gospels. Jesus is on earth. He's living the perfect life that we couldn't live. He's coming to die in our place, recognizing that we're guilty And that there needs to be someone to take the penalty of all the brokenness of this humanity. He comes to do this. And he's on this journey to the cross. And that's where we're going to pick it up. It's in the the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew. Look at Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Even the Savior, even Jesus, God come in human flesh, feels the weight, feels the brokenness, and he comes and brings that in prayer. Jesus cries out. He commits his spirit and his soul into the hands of God in the midst of the terrible suffering of bearing our sins. So we see him cry out as well. The next part after the crying that we see within Psalm 1-4 through is the waiting. Waiting for the Lord. This is the next step in the cycle of hope. So let's go back to Psalm 130. Verse 5, it says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. Whenever you see lines repeated like that, it's like this big spotlight saying, like, pay attention. There is a deep emotion that is happening here that is needed. And so the cycle of hope begins with this realizing our desperate need for the Lord, our desperate need for Jesus. But then it transitions to waiting. 
waiting and not knowing the outcome. And not knowing when the waiting will come to an end. We wait for the Lord to provide the solution. We're waiting on his authority. We're waiting on his goodness. We're waiting on him, believing that he knows what is best. But it's not simply waiting and doing nothing. It's continuing ahead in life with the sole posture of listening and waiting. What does that mean? What does this look like? It means a, not just a posture of listening, but a posture of contentment, even in the harsh circumstances that you're going through. It's this idea that we would wait for God's answer and not try to manufacture or make up an answer on our own. Because that's where we tend to go. Where we think like, you know what? I cried out to the Lord. I've done my due diligence in prayer. Now I'm going to solve my own problems and I'm going to do it on my own rather than wait for his solution. I try to manufacture my own solution. And so in allowing your soul to wait in the waiting, God will begin to shape your desires to begin to conform to his. That's why waiting is so important. The word soul here is also a deep word that helps us understand what waiting entails. This word that's used for soul is meant for like your entire being. It's both physical. It's both spiritual. And what, what does that mean? It means that in your going through your day-to-day activities, you're intentionally listening for the voice of God. And how do you know the, what the voice of God is? Well, that's what's beautiful about these verses. What, is, what does it say in verse five? It says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits in what? And in his word, I hope. This is why reading God's word is important. I've talked to people before who are wanting to know, like, how do I understand, like, whether I'm hearing God's voice or whether it's the taco I ate last night? How do I understand if it's God's voice or just someone's opinion? How do I do that? Well, you have to know God's voice, and we have his word here. When you begin to get this word, the Bible isn't meant to give you all the little itty-bitty details of all the questions you have in life. It's meant for you to have a relationship with God. And when you have a relationship with someone and get to know them, you get to know their voice. You get to know their character. You get to understand what they do in different circumstances and how they might interact with you in those same types of circumstances. This is why it's just reading your Bible every day. You don't read the Bible to read the Bible. You read the Bible to know God. And then when you face circumstances and you're in that place of waiting, you'll understand when you begin to see God work. You'll be able to, be able to watch which in, with intense, intentionality as well as wait with intentionality. Psalm 69, 13 says, But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Do you hear the waiting in this psalm? And where they're putting themselves in this place of humility saying, my prayer is to you at an acceptable time. Not on my time, not on someone else's time, no, on your time. God, I will wait for you. And then we see it emphasized in this repeated phrase, more than the watchman for the morning. And, and I love this phrase because it's more. Like if you think about a watchman who's standing on the, on the city wall in the depths in the dark of night, not knowing what's going to happen. Are there enemies outside the wall? Is someone going to sneak in? Do I, like keeping your mind alert, there's something about when the, when the day comes forward that there's hope that comes with it. I remember um, I was having a discussion with 
someone who ran security for a large church, and they said one of the biggest ways to stop bad things from happening is simply put lights around your building. Like, that was it, because all of a sudden, the darkness is exposed. People can't hide within the darkness to do terrible things. And so there's this intensity of, like, man, more than the watchman for the morning who's just waiting for the dawn to come so they can see the landscape, so they don't have to worry about hidden things. More than that, do we wait for the Lord. And think about the darkness the watchman waits through. It's so synonymous with the depths that were described in verse 2. One. And so this metaphor then leans into the last sections. We look at this cycle of hope coming full around. But before we get there, we also see this posture of waiting with Jesus. So if you turn back to Matthew 26, it says this in verse 39. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. It says, in going a little farther, He, Jesus, fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Like, there's this beauty of Jesus and what he represented, coming in full humanity, being in this posture of humility within the triunity of God, and saying, Not my will, but yours. And so we do the same thing in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our depths. Waiting can often be a test that God uses, and waiting is also a means to hope. I was discussing the sermon with my wife and sharing some of the concepts as I was reading through it, and she shared this quote with me from a book she was reading. It says this, if you feel stuck in a hopeless place today, I don't want to rush you to joy. Maybe you need to spend a little time letting the darkness do what darkness does. Nourish, strengthen, and hold. The darkness can invite us into a mystery, a place where we don't know the answer. We know that seeds need to bury down deep in the ground, sometimes for a long, long time. Eventually, these seeds will break open and take root. But first, they have to settle into the darkness. Still, that seed carries within it a narrative of hope. It just hasn't lived into the whole story yet. And so we cry out to the Lord, we wait for him, and then we hope. Let's look at the last two verses of the psalm. Verses 7 and 8. It says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now, As we've been going through these psalms, this often happens, where it'll start a psalm and it'll be individual. You'll see this at the beginning of the psalm. It's like someone who's crying out on their own to God, but then it usually transitions to a community. And so we see this where it says, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Again, we're not alone. We have a family, we have a church, and it's necessary for all the community to cry together, to cry for each other. And and, and think about this as we go through life. There are other cycles within life. We get into cycles of sin and brokenness, even in our own brokenness where we'll drag others into that. Or there'll be cycles of despair and how that can be infectious and what that looks like. So also is hope infectious. 
Our hope in pursuing Jesus isn't just an individual thing. It is a church thing, and we do it together. So even as you read the Old Testament and you see these cries, O Israel, hope in the Lord, what was Israel? Israel was God's people, God's family. What is the church? The church is God's people and God's family. So when you see that declaration, O Israel, hope in the Lord, we can take that today and say, O church, hope in the Lord. Again, that's why we come. That's why we gather to remind ourselves of this need. And we see a couple aspects for why we should even hope in the Lord. Because with the Lord, there is steadfast love. I forget which translation it was that I was reading earlier this week, but they uh, used the word loyal instead of steadfast. So with the Lord, there is loyal love, unwavering love. And isn't that what we desire out of any relationship is loyal love. We hope that and desire that people would demonstrate that towards us, whether it's a spouse, a friend, whatever it may be, that we don't have to be afraid of their, of being let down, of being stabbed in the back, or whatever it may be. But isn't, but isn't that the case that no one can hold up that expectation? It's a good thing to pursue, but at some point, because of our humanity, we can't uphold that for each other. So the only place that we can cry and look for loyal love and find it is in Jesus. It's the only place. And so, think about it with me for a minute. Jesus didn't have anything to gain from us. Nothing, absolutely nothing. His desire for us is based on his goodness, not his need. That is how great his affection is for us, and that's the reason why his loyal love will not waver. And you might be in a place right now where you are trying to find loyal love in someone else or something else. And I can guarantee you at some place it's going to let you down and keep letting you down again and again and again. There's only one source for loyal love. There's only one place, and that's in Jesus. Then it says, with the Lord is plentiful redemption. And I I love, I love Psalms. They use such descriptive and colorful words like plentiful redemption. He doesn't run out. It is overflowing. When you read this and and look at the depths, if you're an Israelite, if you grew up in Jewish culture, the first place you're going to look to when you read depths is you're going to go back to the Exodus when God radically saves his people by pulling them through the depths of the Red Sea and making a way for salvation. They would automatically get this. He is the God of of the Exodus. He is a God who brought, brought an entire nation into the land he promised them. He is the God who defeated Satan through his own death. Hoping in the Lord means that you have faith in him to show up on his terms no matter what. Isaiah 51, 10 through 11 describes this kind of radical, plentiful redemption. It says this, was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over. So the ransomed of Yahweh will return and come with joyful shouting in Zion, and everlasting gladness will be on their heads. They will obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Who made the depths of the sea a pathway 
for the redeemed to cross over. He is the God who can reach down into whatever depth you have reached, and he's able to pull you out on his time and on his terms. The last part of the psalm is this confidence, this confidence that comes in the line, and he will redeem Israel. He will redeem Israel. Real hope breeds real confidence to walk through life on God's terms. It means that you will stand on the front line, take the hits because you know that Jesus is going to show up, even if you don't feel like it. He redeemed Israel. And I I love this psalm because notice the tense it used, and he will redeem Israel. It's looking forward to the time when Christ is going to come and be that eternal sacrifice. And think about it, Israel, this is Israel, the group of people that defaulted on their love to God countless times. Israel that ran into the darkness often. Israel that bowed down and worshipped other gods. But God still drew them out of the depths of their own brokenness, their own sin, their own self-made depths of despair. In fact, this psalm, this whole story of Israel is meant to be that big, shining light to say, look to Jesus. No matter what depth you're in, he's the only one who can pull you out. And we see this hope. We see this hope in the darkness and despair that Jesus faced. First of all, understanding what he was doing on the cross. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin. The brokenness that you are in today or that you will be in tomorrow or that you have faced in your past, that was on him and not just yours, but that of the whole world. The whole consequence, all the corruption of sin was on him. So how did Jesus face that? Luke 22, 66 through 69 goes beyond the Garden of Gethsemane to the point where Jesus is being questioned by all sorts of people. And it says this, When day came, the assembly of elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council and said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And as you get the whole story of Jesus, what he is anticipating, what he is hoping is, he knows there's going to be a resurrection coming. In spite of the trials that are ahead, in spite of the fact that he's about to be nailed physically to a cross and bear the spiritual burden and weight. So how does Jesus become our hope? Think about this, that miracle pine in Japan, this one tree standing up that everyone looks to to remember hope. It's like what Jesus says in John three fourteen through 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We have a miracle tree that we look to, and it's the cross, and it's the resurrection that happened after that. And so my prayer for a church, for our church, for everyone who's here right now, is that we engage in this cycle of hope. The reality is, is that we face darkness every single day. We are in the depths to a certain extent because of the brokenness of our world. 
we will face disaster at some point. And whenever we face our own brokenness or some type of darkness, we have the ability to choose the gospel's cycle of hope. When we do this, when we engage in hope, no matter what darkness you're involved in, where you're at, you become a miracle pine for other people. You become this display of the power of Jesus and how he's working in you so that when someone else is going through their darkness, they're like, I remember what Jesus did for that person. And all of a sudden, there's no longer just one little pine displaying the hope for Jesus. There is a forest reborn. And that is what the church is, a forest that is spreading across this globe. It is the kingdom of God invested in us. As we put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in our life and we engage in the cycle of hope. So what, is, what does that mean on a practical level? How do you engage in the cycle of hope on the everyday life? It's what we just read. You cry, and you wait, and then you hope in the promises that God has. You can jump on this cycle no matter what your struggle is. I don't care if you're a teenager, I don't care if you're 10 years old, I don't care if you're 88 years old, you're going to face something every day in which you are going to need to cry out to Jesus, whether it's that you lost your car keys and you're beginning to get over frustrated at your spouse, or maybe you've gone through some terrible trauma that's still haunting you from your past. Those thoughts that creep up, those thoughts that haunt you at night, when those come, you can engage in the cycle of hope, engaging in the cycle daily, it's going to prepare you for the darker times when all we have to hope in is Jesus to get us through. So I want to encourage you with this. Get some time this week, just grab a blank piece of paper and just write everything that is weighing you down, whatever that may be. It, you might just have a list of two things that you can think of, or you might have multiple pages of paper as you're writing all these things out. Be specific. What are the things causing anxiety, creating mental and emotional weight upon you? What is driving you down into the depths, no matter what that depth may be? And bring it before Jesus. Just in all clarity, in all honesty, be like, this is where I'm at. These are the weights that are driving me down into the depth. And then cry out to God. Ask for his help. Repent. Repent has been this word, Christian word, that's often looked at as like just, in fact, it's used in a way that actually drowns you even more. It's like just drowning your guilt and that'll be enough. But that's not what God does in repentance. He's call, calling you to stop having your attention focus off of him and switch from being consumed by your brokenness, your sin, whatever it may be, and be consumed with him. Look to him. Cry out to him and repent of these things. Forgiveness for how something or someone may be consuming your attention rather than him. Forgiveness of how you may be holding on to those lies and believing the lie more than the promises that Christ has to offer you. Use the promises in the psalm, plentiful redemption, loyal love, that those are things that God can give you. Believe the promises of God, not the lies that you face every day. Forgiveness for how you might be holding on to bitterness against someone. There's all sorts of examples. Well, the things that consume us, that weigh us down, often are the sources of our idolatry against God. 
And that's why bringing it in repentance and just being honest with this is where I'm at. And then wait on the Lord. Keep praying. Keep crying out. You might not get an answer right away. God may be instructing you through whatever you may be walking through. And that will pay dividends in the end. Wait on the Lord to reveal in his time, in his way, on his terms, the answer that he has for where you're at. Humbly tell the Lord, I will wait on you. And keep an eye out for the answer that he will provide. Tell God in prayer the promises. This may seem simple. It may seem pointless where it's just like coming to God and being like, God, you say you're loyal in your love. God, you say you have plentiful redemption. I'm having a hard time believing that right now, but I'm just going to proclaim it in prayer and trust in you. With the Lord, there is loyal love. With the Lord, it's plentiful redemption. The Lord will redeem us from our sin. And so that's the cycle. And I believe that we can jump on the cycle in so many different things. Anything that weighs us down in life, we can engage in this cycle. And this is the thing. It doesn't promise, the cycle doesn't promise that all your problems will just miraculously disappear if you go through this. Rather, what it's doing is lifting you up from the depths to a place of hope. That's, all the, that's the whole point. Hope is something that is worth everything to be able to hope in this life. And there is the ability to hope in Jesus. And there's two ways as the church. Sacraments is what we call them. These powerful, active metaphors that remind us of the hope. This psalm depicts what baptism is all about. You are put into the depths of the water. When someone is baptized who has put their faith in Jesus, they are put in the depths of the water, showing that they are dying to their hopelessness in sin. That sin is what they are dying to, that it no longer has power over them because they are raised into new life. They are raised into hope. The other thing that we celebrate every week is we gather and we celebrate communion. Why? Because it's the beginning of our cycle of hope for the week. We come and we celebrate the fact with the cracker that God's body is broken and we dip it into the little juice cup to remember that his blood was shed for us so that we have the ability to hope so that we can engage in the cycle of hope. And I encourage you, parents, do this with your kids. Like, it's sometimes embarrassing. It's sometimes, may even feel like a failure when you realize your own mistakes. You're like, I gotta jump on the cycle of hope now. Can you kids pray with me? As I cry out to the Lord, can you wait with me? And here are the promises that I believe in, even though it's hard right now. We do this together as a family. We take communion as a family, and this is the centerpiece of our hope, the foundation for all that we are as a, as a community and as we gather. And so I encourage you, as we take communion here in a little bit, remember, we're those miracle pines. We're those signposts to remember the power of Jesus and what he's done for us. So we're going to close here with some singing, and we practice um, open communion every week. And what we mean by that is that come up on your own, Grab the cracker, grab the juice. This is for those who have put their faith in Jesus because it is the sacred reminder of hope in what Jesus has done for us. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, it is by 
your power. It is a miracle that we can gather here to get today as a family, and we can proclaim hope. We can begin our week with the cycle of hope. And I just pray for each person who is here, whatever depth they may be at. Maybe they, they're at the very bottom. They've never been at a lower place. And I just pray that they fight to get on that cycle of hope, to cry out to you, to wait on you, to trust and hope in your promises. And Jesus, as we journey forward as a radiant church, as we journey forward as part of a larger church around the world, I just pray that we'd be that vehicle of hope. <laughs> that people would see that there is, there is a real peace that we can have with you as God our Father. And it comes through the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. It comes through his resurrection. So Jesus, empower us right now. Holy Spirit, empower us right now as we move into this week. And I, I just ask that there would be stories, stories that would come out of this week that would just be a blessing to this place, to this city, about the hope that you've provided. We thank you, Jesus, and it's, it's in your name that we hope. Amen.